Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I'm your host, Jerry Wan. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's September. Uh, we have now four months left to go in the year. I hope that we all end the year really well. Uh, 2020 has been a challenging year, uh, but we have four months to uh, make the most of it. The election is coming up in two months. Make sure that you are registered to vote. Make sure that you fill out your census. And let's finish out the year really, really strong. I want to share a few things with you today before we get to our interview. Big shout out to our first Patreon member, Sarah Yu, uh, who's been a dear friend, a guest on the show, and a big supporter of the show, as well as my other projects. Sarah, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. If you want to join Sarah in supporting the show, uh, you can join her at patreon.com slash Americans, or go ahead to our website, DearAsianAmericans.com, and you'll find the red P to join. We're also launching a new show here at Dear Asian Americans, and I encourage you to check it out. It is Chanchi Show. Uh, the Chanchi Show is actually something that happened as a result of three guests that have been on the show here. Uh, Nathan Nowak, KJ Rauke, and Patrick Armstrong were all guests of mine here on The Asian Americans. You probably remember their stories. They were all, they are all Korean adoptees uh, living in different parts of the country and living through different life stages. And I was honored to connect the three of them. And for the last month or so, we've been ideating and we created a show featuring all three of them and discovering their own identity and just talking about life as Korean adoptees. So the Chanchi show launches tomorrow on September 2nd. We kick off with individual interviews of all three hosts conducted by the other two. It's really, really great. I've had a lot of fun, so much fun creating these with these guys and sometimes wonder what the legacy of the Asian Americans might be. Often think about what comes of all this work that we're putting in. Doing this show with the guys, helping other Korean adoptees feel less alone and to share their stories out and to do my part in, in helping them and others uh, connect with their identity and learn more about their culture, their food, their customs uh, has really been the biggest highlight for me in creating the Asian Americans and doing what I do here. So uh, to Nathan, KJ and Patrick, to my brothers, thank you uh, for giving me the opportunity to serve in a different way um, our community. Again, it's Chanchi Show. Uh, you can check out the links below in the show notes. Follow us on social across the board. We're going to do a fun live stream on Friday afternoon uh, to celebrate the beginning of the show. Encourage you to do that. And as a part of the Asian Podcast Network, we have released the best of Asian Podcast Network August 2020 playlist. Features some of the best episodes from the member podcast of Asian Podcast Network. So Again, the show notes will have that link for you. Appreciate you joining us today. And here now is my conversation with episode 72 guest, Grace Choi, founder and CEO of Cookable AI. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. Wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to this, we wish you all the health, safety, and happiness in the world. It's August, or at least we're recording this in August, and um, we were supposed to have made it out of this thing by now. And here we are. Um, smack in the middle of summer where we should be going out and enjoying wonderful and memorable times with loved ones, with family, celebrating all that life brings us. But it looks like we're going to be putting that on pause for a little bit longer. And so sort of a side effect of that, and I don't want to call it a, a silver lining because what we are dealing with is obviously a very serious issue, is that a lot of us have uh, had the fortune or the opportunity to spend a little bit more time at home. 
And as home goes, and for a while, restaurants were not open and we're spending, again, a significant number of hours at home with our families, we're cooking more. And cooking food is really what brings families together. If you're listening to this show, there's a good chance that you identify as an Asian American. And, and we live in both cultures, right? Whether it is the comfort foods that our mothers made us, and we can argue about you know, whose, whose mom's uh, food is the best, um, especially when it comes to our signature comfort foods, or just the foods that we've grown to love as we've grown up in an American society or learning to cook something new. And so really excited to share this conversation with our guest, Grace Choi, who is joining us from Northern Virginia. She's the founder and CEO of Cookable. And so we're going to learn all about how she is doing through this pandemic. We're both parents of little people. And so we're hopefully timing this right before we get pleasantly bothered, perhaps potentially, by screaming kids, which we all love and we appreciate. And we're going to talk about how she went through her traditional academic journey. We're going to also learn about how she ventured into food and how it all makes sense in her head of what it means to her in the context of her Korean American and Asian American identity. Hey, Grace, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm glad to be here. How, how are things over there? As, as I mentioned in the intro, we're, we're both parents. We're both working from home. We're both starting our own thing. Yeah. It's in the middle of a pandemic. How, how are things over in Virginia? I'm, they're brutally hot, just scorching. So it's it's difficult because, you know, normally we would be introducing our children to the pools around this time, um, but we're not going to pools. Uh, we can't really go outside just because it's so hot and humid. So we're kind of sequestered indoors. But yeah, other than that, it's, it's okay. Like, I think... I was just talking to my husband today. I feel like there's this overall sense of fatigue among me and my friends and just our community. Everybody's just tired, tired of coronavirus, tired of doing things, tired of doing things virtually, remotely. And I'm just getting that sense. And I don't know if it's the heat or it's the combination of the heat and just like how long we've been quarantining um, or how long we've just been dealing with just this onslaught of like political drama and uh, inefficiencies handling of the of the pandemic but um yeah it just doesn't seem like there's like a light at the end of the tunnel which i know is kind of bleak but that's that's how today feels i think you're not you're not alone i think obviously there's no way to slice or isolate one thing that's bringing us this sense of frustration or unending anxiety where you sort of have to give in to the fact that this is going to be the way it is for a while and so yeah i i think and i think about you know, I believe in science. I did quarantine. I was good. And now I'm still getting frustrated. I can't imagine. And this is the scariest part of all. If you never believe in this crap to begin with, where are you now mentally? Where are you like starting to believe more? Or are you just more clawing your, you know, nails into this is stupid. Let's get back to normal. And that's what really, you know, scares a lot of us. Yeah. So yeah, it's, you know, ho hopefully we'll, we'll get back to, uh, you know, spending more time uh, with the ones we love, you know, cooking up amazing meals and really enjoying friends and family. I hope so. Which it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's going to be a tricky thing. But if you think forward to the holidays, which is what I'm doing yeah. right now, like what is Thanksgiving going to look like? Like I read this article about how Costco isn't selling sheet cakes because they're trying to dis discourage people from large gatherings. And then I was thinking, which is, you know, which is great. But um, I was also thinking about what they're going to do with turkey sizes this year. Like are turkeys going, are they raising turkeys to be more than 14 pounds or more than 11 pounds? Because I mean, realistically, are we going to have like large Thanksgiving gatherings or is it going to be sort of smaller in-home gatherings that are conducted virtually? 
I mean, I think businesses can do whatever they want. I think those are all good PR pieces for them. Like, oh, we're not. Where there's a will, there's a way. And I'm sure you have as well. I've seen one too many Instagram stories from friends who are obviously at parties that are just showing not people. Like, you can't show me a picture of a spread or like a grill full of food and expect me to believe that you're just eating that by yourself, right? right? Like, so we've gone... People used to share actual people in parties and I guess they're like, oh, that's not good. I'm getting shit for it. And so I'm going to be smart and savvy and like, just don't do it. Right. (laughs) Like one, you shouldn't get like, you know. Yeah. And if you think this is a political statement, come on. Right. Like this is literally proven. Like the more you hang out with people, the more the the higher risk. Right. So and then Vice had a really nice article just a while ago about how the spreading is being tied to small intimate family gatherings Mm -hmm. because people go back to work. People go back to other parts of their lives. We can talk about this for hours. And I think it's an issue that needs to be talked about for hours, but would love to get to know you as a person. You might be the only person that I know and that many people will know who has a PhD in food sciences, which is fascinating. Food studies. Because we know that food is a science. Well, it's it's food studies, not food science. Food studies. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Uh, Food studies. So I, I don't know. I, I was joking with you before we started. It's like, okay, your parents are cool because you have a doctorate, right? And you're like, okay, good. She's PhD. But then you're also doing the thing that makes you so happy and, and brings you the biggest joy in your life, which is to go deep, you know, headfirst into the world of food, but also learn it from a very academic perspective. So to help us better understand the grace that we are know that we know today, um, CEO and founder of Cookable, um, the woman with a, a PhD in food studies and really doing a lot to share food-based stories and personalities with the world uh, through your podcast, The Psyche Eats, and so many other variables. Let's learn about Grace in her earlier years. Um, share with us how the Choi family moved to America. Um, how old were you? Were you born here? You know, what part of that? How, how was that part of your life? Right. My parents moved to the Philadelphia area in 1978, that, that wave of immigration. And it was really my, I think my Fourth harmony, fourth, fourth sister, my my grandmother's younger sister, who moved first and uh, brought everybody else over. Um, my parents were well. My mom was a flight attendant in Korea for Korean Airlines in the seventies, uh, which was a very glamorous job at the time. It, I mean, it still is. If you fly Korean Airlines, it's just like they're they're top notch. The stewardesses, the flight attendants, and my dad obviously he did the military requirement. Um, they were. I think they dated in college. So my dad went to Seoul National University. My mom went to Iwa Women's College. And I think they dated, they were both members of the Tiger Club, which is like this English speaking club. Um, And then met on a flight when my mom was a flight attendant, uh, like reconnected on a flight. And um, yeah, I moved to Philadelphia together and had my brother first and then me. So no, I'm sorry. I think they moved in 1976. Yeah, the mid 70s. and it was tough because at the time you could only come with like a certain amount of money in your pocket and their degrees weren't that meaningful here. And so they really had to start from the ground up. I mean, my dad was folding laundry at a laundromat. My mom was welding computer chips at a manufacturing company um, and really struggling to make ends meet. Uh, my dad went to school. Actually, they both went to school um, at nighttime for computer programming. And so like all of those factors just really fed into this idea of what I, uh, what I was raised into and, and what I, what I owed them, not in terms of, you know, like if 
financial stuff, but the sacrifices and that kind of thing. Um, and then from Philadelphia, we moved from uh, we moved to Northern Virginia, which is where I grew up. And then uh, and then I moved away to college to Notre Dame, and then from there to New York. Northern Virginia, as we know it today, top five most populated Korean American area yeah. of America. I have some family out there, and you know there there's uh, you know enough H marts to you know, not just have one supermarket outfit. How was it in the 80s as you were growing up there? Was it, were were you one of the first Korean American families to sort of stake a claim there? And like, why was that an area that a lot of folks moved to? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. I don't know the answer, although I would tell you that there is a good book um, that was currently published and it's called A Mighty and Irresistible Tide. And it was actually written by a graduate of Thomas Jefferson, the, um, the magnet school, um, science mm-hmm. technology school. Um, so she would probably be better at, at, better at explaining why Northern Virginia. My dad moved here because he got a job with the government or actually a government contra- contractor. And then um, from there, he went and started serving in the Department of Defense. Um, but the Korean American community was pretty established by the time you know, we arrived and it was very, you know, this area is so diverse. There's just, there are a lot of people from a lot of different countries. The Korean community is very substantive in the area. And so I always grew up with a lot of Korean friends. I went to, well, so this might be a little controversial for Koreans, but I went to a Protestant church when I was much younger. And then my mom converted to Catholicism when I was eight and my brother and I followed suit. And then I, I was Catholic from then on. And yeah, there's one Korean Catholic church in the area and just had a lot of friends through church and through school. So it was a very rich experience. That's interesting. I I think, you know, church plays a, not perhaps critical, but at least a significant role within many immigrant communities, particularly Korean, um, at least for our parents' generation. Um, That was their community, right? Their, Their language skills, their social skills, they didn't go to schools out here. So you know, whether it was by choice or um, unfortunately being excluded by members who were gatekeepers at other community and, and local organizations, um, we were almost forced into creating our own little socio bubbles. And then church was at the core of it. I, 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 you know, my family certainly grew up, you know, that way too. And although I don't really have too many friends from the church parts of my life, I, I do recognize that that is a large, significant influence. And in areas that may not have as much density in terms of Asian or Korean American uh, communities, church was sort of the cultural glue that brought kids together where yeah. they may have gone to schools that where they might be the only at school on the weekend, whether and a lot of cultural language programs were sponsored through church programs. So um, that was sort of the weekend was, I think, the, the cultural sort of the um, exploration part. And, and so you went to school in South Bend, Indiana at Notre Dame yeah. and still put on your LinkedIn proudly that you were part of the Asian Student Association and KSA, fellow proud KSA member from USC around the same time as you, uh-huh. um, probably overlapped a few years there. How was that like going to a school where coming from a community in Northern Virginia where you knew people that looked like you, hung out with people that looked like you? Um, was it important for you to find that similar community? in a faraway place at a school like Notre Dame that was, that still, you know, has a, um, I don't want to say a stereotype, but has an image of being a very 
Catholic, very conservative, you know, not very diverse population? Yes, so many things. I mean, it was very homogenous for sure. But in terms of religious diversity, I think that, I mean, I think what 85% of this body is Catholic or more. Um, Mm. But there was, I came from a very, very conservative diocese. The Arlington Diocese is one of the most conservative in the country. Um, the last to really allow for female altar servers. Um, and I didn't really understand that there were different types of Catholicism until I went to Notre Dame. And then I learned much more about like the sort of liberal side of Catholicism. And then even more so when I moved to New York and, um, and was part of the Catholic Church out in New York, which is, of course, very liberal. Um, but in terms of the student body, it was really challenging being a, an Asian American. Uh, there were certain things I just didn't understand. Like, so I was a pretty awkward girl when I was younger um, and didn't really, um, let's see, how do I put this? Nobody wanted to date me. And so I went to college and I was so excited to date because I was starting to lose my baby fat. You know what I mean? I was excited to get out into the world. And uh, still I went to college and nobody wanted to date me. And I would go to parties and I just, it was funny because I would go and it was so obvious that people were so uncomfortable with my presence. Um, and that's just not what you want from a school experience. And I wasn't sure if it was me or if it was my race, uh, until I connected with other ethnic minorities, um, at Notre Dame. And it turned out that we all had a very similar experience. When I went to school, before I went to school, trying to make the decision to go there, um, it was either Notre Dame or UVA and UVA obviously is very diverse and has a lot of, um, Asian Americans. Which is, very, some, which is a community in which I feel very comfortable. But um, my mom was telling me, she was like, one of the benefits of going to a school like Notre Dame is that even if there aren't that many Asian Americans, there isn't as much ethnocentricity. People aren't forming their little bubbles as much. So I was like, oh, you know, that makes mm. a lot of sense. And one of the benefits of going to Notre Dame was that um, the Blacks, Latinos, the Asians, we all collectively supported each other. So not only was I, you know, in the Korean Student Association, but I was also in the Filipino American Student Organization. I would mm. perform their cultural dances. I was in Malianza, the Latin American group. You know what I mean? It was just, it was very dynamic in that sense. But I think that, I mean, I have a couple of pockets of friends from Notre Dame, um, as we are all apt to have from college. And I'm very, very close with all of them. Uh, not all of them are minorities, but when I left school, I think that there was a part of me that really felt like I did not have anything fundamental and offend- fundamentally in common with white people. I think that I had been damaged to a certain extent because of that sense of uh, social exclusion that happened on an everyday basis. So it really wasn't until I moved to New York and um, went to NYU and met other people that I was able to sort of shed that, um, that feeling sense. No, that makes complete sense. So I'm really good friends with one of your classmates from Notre Dame, uh, Sun Nguyen, uh, who oh, I, I really crossed paths with. Oh my gosh, he's the best. Yeah. yeah, so Sun was working in the admissions office at Michigan when I was getting my MBA. Ah. And, and now he's here on the West Coast. And um, we've uh, talked a lot. He's actually been on a career a webinar that we had here on the show. And and, and he shares similar sentiments, right? He, it's Notre Dame was such a fundamental part of his identity. And I, I think that being able to connect with others in a meaningful way, but also 
perhaps the lessons were painful, but they were necessary. And the earlier you learned them, it may have set you up for a better adulthood or a more, um, I guess, mindful adulthood. Um, I think what our parents may have wanted us to be was to be completely accepted and assimilated in a culture where we would never really be 100% included. And so I, I went, to, I, I, you know, I grew up in Fullerton and then went to high school in New York City. And when I went to high school in New York City, that was the first time where I was like, whoa, this is different, right? And um, as I'm sure you lived in New York City, like, you know, parents don't drive their kids to school. Like my mom tried for the first year or so. And it's like, oh, this isn't the way we do things here. Because in Southern California, everybody drives you to school. Yeah. And, and so that richness and diversity and, and knowing that people come from very different backgrounds and not just racial and ethnic background, but socioeconomic and religious. And that I think I, you know, like you, I was very fortunate to have learned that lesson at a very early age, which shaped my worldview in knowing that, you know, there's so much diversity that makes it awesome. Um, and even, even then, I think, depending on, you know, what social circles you, you, uh, you know, chose to hang out with, um, like I was very involved with KSA in college, but I also had yeah. a diverse group of friends that were outside of that bubble. Same. And, and so I, I think your background, especially through college is, is super fascinating. Um, what did you do right after Notre Dame when you moved to New York city? Right after Notre Dame, um, I went to culinary school. So I moved to New York and, um, I was dating somebody uh, and I visited New York and it's funny. I immediately felt energized by the city when I had visited during one of my fall breaks. And it was so obvious that it was where I was going to be. Um, I just remember walking around Greenwich village and seeing people selling books at like on tables on the sidewalk. Um, and I, there was so much life that just like that just exuded from the pavement. Um, and I moved to New York and I got this marketing job, which I absolutely hated and was terrible at. And within a couple of months, I decided I was going to enroll at the French Culinary Institute, which I had been thinking about since my senior year of college. Um, I got pamphlets and everything like that. And I just really wanted to, I just decided to dive right in. And hmm. initially I talked to my mom um, when I was a senior in college because I graduated early and I was substitute teaching at, at, um, in South Bend and also just working on campus. Um, during that spring semester. And I remember talking to my mom and asking, what do you think about my taking cooking classes locally? And my mom's like, oh, <laughs> she's like, cooking is a, is a hobby, but not a career. And I said, okay. And this is the early 2000s. And so um, I, I did, she didn't know that I was thinking about going to the French Culinary Institute. But then finally, I just decided to dive in and told my parents because they had to co-sign up my loan. And they're like, okay, <laughs> we support you. And I, yeah, I went to culinary school. And then after that, that was nine months because I did the evening program. And then after that, I did an externship at Per Se, um, at the height of Per Se. Uh, and I was working there 65 hours a week and had my other job 35 hours a week. And I was so unbelievably tired. Um, and then from there, I moved to Italy to work at a restaurant and work, and work on a cookbook up there. And then from Italy, came back to New York and started at NYU. That's quite i mean that that's a fun conversation to have after your parents send you to notre dame obviously you know um <laughs> probably a bigger deal because you said your, your family you know um converted to catholicism so it's like sort of the the ultimate like catholic education step right yeah and then to have the conversation of hey i want to go to cooking school i need to borrow more money and then i'm just going to move to italy and then like learn to cook what so you discovered the love of but that wasn't like you didn't just all of a sudden go to New York and fall in love with cooking. 
what what about you know what some of the things were your earlier influences that like had you fall in love with food and the experience of cooking I think it's so multifaceted. I took this graduate class with um, a research methodologist named Naibi Wei, and she had said something like, the research questions that we have are driven by the things that piss us off the most. Um, and up to an extent, I, I kind of agree. Um, I was always very much interested in food. And my mom always says that I didn't learn to cook until I was in, in culinary school. I mean, I had cooked, I had dabbled a little bit, but culinary school was just big challenge. Um, but my mom always said that she knew I was going to learn to cook because I love to be around people. And so I think from a very early age, I always saw the role that food played in bringing people together. But um, it was really the, I, you know, I tell this story about how when I look back on my life, um, all the seminal things that I remember uh, that make up who I am, or make up my fundamental memories kind of revolve around food. Like I don't remember the, I don't remember storylines from books, but I remember the, the foods that they ate. Um, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, for example, or like all of those like seminal movies from our childhood. I remember the food. I remember the, the ways in which people's interior worlds were being communicated through the things that they ate or their thought processes or their identities were being communicated. And then as a graduate student later on, it was really about identity and it was really about ethnic identity. Like, What are these experiences that younger people have when it comes to um, being out in the world and, and hearing the ways people talk about their home foods, right? The, the, the foods that they grew up with. Uh, and for me, I had very, you know, very complex experiences. And for me, going into food was a way to sort of unpack all of those things, not just it was, it was a way to be a part of something that I absolutely loved, which brought people together, but it was also a way to understand the psychology of a, of a person and also their, their identity development over the course of their lifetime. Most people who venture into food either take the extremely artistic approach and continue to cook and prove, quote-unquote, their worth in the kitchen, perhaps open up their own restaurants as, as many you know, um, apprentice types of folks from folks under like Thomas Carroll, like you that end up going, or they take a very business approach and find investors to open up concepts and to try a bunch of new stuff. You went down and took your love of food in a very unique way, which is to go back into academia and, you know, pursued higher education, graduate education within food studies at NYU. What was the thought process behind that? And even before you thought about it, like how did that program come into your your existence in your world? It's funny, when I was a senior in college, I, I was just thinking about this the other day. I was I had to go see a doctor for something. I, I don't remember what. And he was an Indian doctor. And he, he said, uh, he said, do you have a boyfriend? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, forget your boyfriend. Um, finish your degree and then get your master's and then get your PhD. And I was like, okay, uh, that's not going to happen. I just never saw graduate school as something happening for me. Not because I didn't think I was capable, but I just didn't have any interest in it. Um, so I never would have gone to graduate school, especially getting a doctorate in something other than in food. It just, it, it, even the idea of it, it's, it's still funny to my parents, the fact that I got, I ended up getting my PhD. Um, it was very unexpected. I, it came out of ignorance, I, I think. Um, 
and also just a kind of a sense of wanting to dive into the, the hardest thing possible for myself. Um, first, I found out about the NYU Food Studies program, well, the master's program when I was in culinary school, because like you said, it didn't seem like there were that many outlets for me to be in the food industry, other than in restaurants or working in PR or something like that. Um, and I didn't find myself in either of those categories. I, I didn't see any sort of inherent talent in myself to create food and create you know, novelty dishes or anything or novelty flavors. And on the other hand, I wasn't a talented writer or I wasn't interested in public relations. And then reading this description about food studies was really interesting, diving into sort of the cultural exploration of uh, food and the human experience. Um, and then when I was, I, I, after, I came, after I left Italy, um, when I was working as a sous chef there, um, I, had, I got this job opportunity with Northern Virginia Magazine, which was new at the time, to be their food critic. And I remember when I got that job offer, the same day I found out that there was a PhD program in food studies. And I said, oh, well, this sounds amazing because then I could just go all the way, all the way in. Um, so I applied. I turned down the job offer from the other place and I applied for the PhD program and I got rejected. Um, but then I got a call from the professor, uh, the director of the program saying, you know, we still really loved your application. Would you consider coming in and starting as a master's student and getting a, um, acclimated to the program? Uh, and I said, yes, absolutely. You know, when can I, when can I set up? So I, I enrolled in the master's program and that was a really good introduction to what food studies was. Um, and it intimidated me so much because I saw who got into the program ahead of me. Um, and that was such a model for me to sort of aspire to. Um, but really it was, again, just ignorance. Like I had no idea how hard it was going to be. I had no idea how challenging it was going to be or how much it was going to cause me to, um, doubt myself or have so much anxiety for the next seven years. And I remember talking to my mom and saying, like, Mom, I just, I, had I known it was going to be this hard, I never would have done it. And she was like, well, that's why it's such a blessing to not know our future, because how, could, how else could we ever have the courage to try something new? Um, and that was, that's, that's always stuck with me. But yeah, it was, it was, I was, I think, I feel like I've always been driven by the desire to do the next biggest, hardest thing. That's a lot of lessons in just the story that you shared, right? And I think, we live in an information age with way too much information, perhaps over information. And we've also been brought up in a very capitalistic. And while I mean this in the economic sense, but I also mean this in an academic and professional sense where we are constantly bombarded with, you have to have gone to this school and have this job. And this is how you tie a lot of your self-worth to these things. And so when I talk to young people and I certainly, you know, was victim to this too, it just feels like you have to have all your stuff figured out before you take that first step. And, you know, you need to know what you're going to be doing in 10 years. You know, the, the proverbial question, you go into a job interview goes, where do you see yourself in five, 10, 15 years? Like how shit, none of us knew we'd be here on January 1st. Right. But here we are. So, so your, your, your lesson of just, you know, um, perhaps, it, you know, as you said, it was ignorance or perhaps it's just following a passion and, life will figure itself out or just go down a path and, and decide to pivot as, as necessary. I think that's a very important lesson for a lot of our folks that might be listening, right? Like you don't have to have everything figured out, but it sounds like you had a very supportive family um, as you were pursuing this. Because yeah. like you said, it's it's a unique degree. It's not something that, I don't know, um, immigrant parents come here and you go, okay, like 
we sent you to Notre Dame, like now you're getting a PhD, cool. But like, what is, and, and you know, folks want to know what you're going to do with it, right? What, what, what did you want to do with it? And, and I guess before we do that, give us a little bit of context and educate us on food studies. What did you, what sort of research did you do? And then share with us a little bit about your dissertation that you wrote in, in the pursuit of your PhD. Well, the food studies program is super interesting for many reasons, uh, because um, not a lot of people understand what it is, um, or they think that it's something completely different, or they don't, or it sounds like you're getting your PhD in basket weaving, you know what I mean? <laughs> or like um, studying astrology science. Is, I mean, maybe there are like legitimate careers in that, and I don't want to disparage that, but um, I, I think that if somebody were to hear, oh, a PhD in food studies, some people understand it right away, but the majority of people don't quite. Um, so food studies uh, is an exploration of food and the human experience. Who, it, rather than The way I explain it is rather than going into an anthropology department or American studies department or a psychology department and focusing on food, you're going into food studies and your, your core classes are on food history, um, comparative issues in food, uh, food and agriculture, um, theoretical considerations around food, everything that you can possibly think of with regards to food in the deepest, deepest way possible. So for me, I decided to, I, again, I was really interested in identity development. So I did most of my coursework in, can you hear me okay? Okay, sorry. Um, I did most of my coursework in applied psychology, uh, or I piggybacked on mm. developmental psychology courses. Um, and I studied under a psychologist named Carol Gilligan, who uh, created this method called the listening guide method. And she's one of the most uh, prominent feminist psychology professors of, I think, the last 100 years. And I also took courses in anthropology and linguistic anthropology and the acquisition of cultural practices. Uh, and that was seminal in the sense that it gave me the legs to do original and meaningful research. So I look at food and psychology. I look at how we communicate our identities through food and how our identities are communicated to us by others through the lens of food. When I reached out to my, my participants for my, for my dissertation, when I sent out a call for participants and I said, I'm really interested in exploring how we shape our identities through food and how we communicate them through food. 10 out of the 20 people that responded to me had just lost a parent in their 20s. And the salience of food was so much more profound in their life. Um, suddenly they were remembering all the rituals and all the interactions around food and how food was used to communicate love and emotion and uh, relationships. And that was a really interesting entry point for me because I was able to structure the conversation around loss. How is that loss perpetuates this meaningfulness around food? Um, and then it turned into a dissertation that centered on three individuals, one whom had lost a parent, one who had uh, undergone a divorce, and another who was, you know, similar to you and I, I felt this loss of identity. Um, it's, it's really, this is the chapter that I have the hardest time remembering because it was such a long time ago, but he felt as though he was not able to be the person that he wanted to be as an Asian American because he felt uh, sort of restricted to a very specific category of personhood, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Like he felt obligations from his parents to be a certain way and didn't feel that freedom that he felt his white American friends had to explore and be, just discover who they could be in the world. 
should, I think, is the most toxic word that our parents use in their own way. Should comes out in a multitude of forms. Sometimes it comes off as my friend's son, dot, 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 and, or, you know, uh, so-and-so got a so-and-so job or, you know, parents, if you're listening, please stop doing that. Um, <laughs> and kids, don't listen to your parents when your parents do that. Live your life. Life is short. Um, I think if any, one, one of the many blessings or I guess lessons we take away from 2020 is the realities of loss. Perhaps you're suffering from a loss within your own immediate circles, whether it's COVID or other health related. Mm -hmm. But I think overall, you're, you're right. Um, in what makes uh, perhaps a result of loss is this feeling of homesickness or vulnerability where we sort of actually naturally physically long for food that we remember as children when we were, when we felt safe and when we felt loved. But I think to even study that and, and to put an academic angle to it, to put, to put an academic angle to something that we, most of us know to be true, I, I think that's really, really cool. I, I think it's a meaning, meaningful conversation. Um, you talk to a lot of our friends and, you know, maybe, I don't know, when you're sick, what do you want, right? Like, you know, I don't want chicken noodle soup when I'm sick, like, because I didn't grow up with it, right? Like, um, it's different. So when you're also, but you're trying to fill, not, not fill a void, but you're, you're trying to, um, it, I think it's a natural defense mechanism to want to heal yourself in the ways that are comfortable to you. And food is really, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a natural um, reaction or an impulsive yeah. physical reaction to our emotions. Yeah, so I, I think that's fascinating. Absolutely. I, at the end of my dissertation, I, I discussed how we enact our identities through food. We communicate who we are through food, but we reenact relationships through the things that we choose to cook and eat as well. Um, you know, when you cook something that your mother made for you or that you had when you were younger, it's a reenactment of that experience. It's a reenactment of that relationship. How did doing the PhD and, and writing this dissertation impact your relationship with your own mother? I mean, my mom is amazing. She's, she's probably the only person outside of my dissertation committee that tried to penetrate my dissertation itself. You know what I mean? Even though it's so dense and academic, like she tried to get through as much as she could. Um, she's, there are a lot of really important lessons. I, I remember when I was in my third year, maybe I was in my second year of the doctoral program, and I was like a, a deaf mute during the entirety of my first two years in the graduate program, just because it was so, so hard. Um, but I remember visiting home and thinking about all the papers that I had to do and being, I remember I was at mass with my, sitting next to my mom and my hand, my hands were balled up and my fists were balled up, like super, super tight, because I was just thinking about what I needed to do. And my mom, she reached over and she slowly unfurled each and every single one of my fingers to try and get me to relax. Like she could sense how stressed out I was about it. And, you know, she was just that perfect uh, Korean parent in times of crisis, you know, even if it's like self-made crisis, where I remember doing my candidacy exam, where you take you, over the course of three days, you have to write three 10 to 15 page papers. And it's very, very intense. And I came home to do it. And she, you know, every, every you know, hour, she came up with a cup of coffee. She came up with a bowl of soup. Like she came up with something and she would, 
you know, give me a little hand massage and stuff like that. She's very, very nurturing. And, you know, my dad is too. Like, it's funny, they were both, I think up until, up until recently, my dad was always asking me when I was going to come home and um, get a government job. <laughs> but he was also, he is also one of my first investors in Cookable. Like, he, he has, he sees, he sees that investment as not only an act of faith in me, but also just a, an investment in my education, like a further investment in my education. He recalls, I remember he he was in his 40s and he was flying back from Korea after, he was in his late 30s and he was, I think he was, his mother had just passed away and he was flying back and he was thinking about his life and he was like, what have I done? What have I accomplished in my life? And he wished, like when he thinks back in his life, he wishes he had taken risk and I think in that sense that's why he is has always been very generous with me in terms of taking on risks or diving into the unknown um both of my parents have been and they're also very unusual as Korean parents go because they have um they're always sending me books you know like Malcolm Gladwell Angela Duckworth's book Grit you know like they're I grew up reading books about autism for some reason, I, there was a phase in our family's life where we were just really interested in autism, <laughs> and so we just mm-hmm. read a lot of. I, I grew up reading a lot of parenting books, and the, things that were just very unconventional. Um, it felt that's so meaningful, um, and I know that this is the case in very, very many other cultures, particularly Asian American cultures. But obviously, I am Korean American, as are you, and I think you know the. We, we joke about it from time to time, but there is a universal phrase that all Korean moms use, and it has about 20 different meanings, and it's, did you eat? Yeah. And it's, hello, how are you? I'm sorry, I miss you, I love you, be well. Like, it's every emotion wrapped into one, and I think it's also just an effect of Korea, all the crap that the country's been through in the last 100 years, mm-hmm. occupation and war and poverty. Um, emotional expression wasn't at the top of the list, right? We look at a needs hierarchy in our own way of like, what are you able to do? Like survival was literally on people's minds. So like, you know, our dads are, or I guess Korean dads are stereotypically notorious for not being very affectionate. Well, they loved in their own way, right? Like they went to work and they brought home money and they provided, but like telling your kids, I love you wasn't the thing. And I know there's a lot of people listening that are like dealing with our, you know, mild or extreme levels of mental and emotional effects of not having the same things that perhaps we viewed our other friends, you know, getting outwardly expressions of love from their parents. But like, have you eaten? Like, like it's, and you know what that means, right? And it doesn't really matter what the answer is. It's cool. Let me feed you because you haven't eaten or I don't care. Sit down, eat. I made something for you, right? Um, you know, even through this pandemic, every few weeks, my mom's like, hey, I know we can't see you, but we literally just want to drop off something at the door because this is how in my limited ability to show my affection for you and the grandkids, like this is how I show love. And we have to receive it that way. Right. And it's not, you know, may- maybe when you talk to somebody who's not, you know, Asian American or whatever, they're like, oh, somebody asking you how you have you eaten? Like, cool. They're just checking in on you. But it's so much deeper than that. Right. So. Yeah. And, and so it's, it, but if, yeah, it, and anybody who's with a similar background experience, when you hear those words, you're like, I know exactly what that means. And it just, you know, to, to me, and I'm sure to many people, it's, it's motherly love. And I, 
find it so awesome and inspiring, Grace, that you've chosen to study it from an academic lens to go talk to people, to uh, read papers and actually produce a paper of your own that really goes down this path. And so as you're finishing up your PhD um, and you graduated in about six years ago, um, what did you want to do and what did you end up doing after you graduated um, with the knowledge and the experience that you had? Uh, I didn't, I had no idea. I think that I'd always had this sense of yearning my entire life for a vocation. Um, my brother always knew he wanted to be a doctor. Um, he's, he's older than me. He's three years older than me. And not because he wanted to help people, even though that's what he does on a day-to-day basis. He's an ER doctor, um, who puts himself at risk every single day, but because he was really interested in the science, he was always just I don't know, pulling legs off spiders and like just just trying to, you know, dismantle things and then put them back together. He was always really interested in that and the science of everything. Um, I never knew what I wanted for myself. And even growing up in this area where it seems like there's so many people who have government contracting jobs or are consultants, I didn't really see the kinds of opportunities that were available. and then the same thing happened with culinary school. I didn't know what kind of job opportunities there were in food. Uh, and then when I was getting my PhD in food studies, it was more of the same. I didn't want to be an academic, but uh, I didn't know what career path I could take outside of academia. I wasn't publishing papers within my program because I wasn't. my attention wasn't focused on that. And also I was working full time as I was getting my PhD, which is kind of ridiculous. Um, but... I graduated without really knowing what I wanted to do. I thought that maybe I would, um, I, I was teaching at the new school in food and psychology. So I was creating, course, uh, creating courses, um, one in particular called How We Eat, the Psychology of Food and Eating. And that was an mm-hmm. interesting opportunity for me to still engage with students and to do research on my own, but um, always searching, longing for that one thing that I was uniquely fit to do. Um, so it wasn't, I mean, I just remember going on LinkedIn and just looking up, you know, looking up keywords and like just not finding something that resonated with me. I was underqualified for everything, overeducated and underqualified for everything. You're not alone in that, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I have these letters after my name. But you want 15 years of experience that doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more. Um, I, I won't, we're going to dive right into um, your, your business cookable and, and your mm-hmm. passions and your missions behind it. But you've also been very active in the media space. Currently have your own podcast, The Psyche Eats. You've been a voiceover coach or voiceover actor, excuse me. And you've had your own mini series on the cooking channel. How have you put together or excelled in that part where you have learned psychology, you've learned food, you've obviously learned the intersection and the beautiful overlap of multicultural, multicultural expression and people. What about sharing the message out to the general public through audio, through video, um, and written works? What, what, what part of that process brings you the most joy? It's hard to say because in the early years when I was in college and not in food yet, but fantasizing about being in food, I was watching Martha Stewart every day. Um, I think the Food Network had just started. So Tyler Florence was just up and coming. Rachel Ray was up and coming. And I just remember thinking how fun it would be to 
be a host of a cooking show on the Food Network. And that really drove me for a while. I mean, that was sort of, I, so when I was, after I'd finished culinary school and was working in kitchens, um, I started working for this woman named Katie Brown, a Katie Brown workshop. I did one season of her show just in food production. Um, so the behind the scenes stuff. And I love the dynamic nature of food media and it just seemed really fun. And I grew up like every, you know, Korean kid in my area, um, playing piano, but it was, I was a very competitive, um, piano player. Not, I wasn't competitive by nature, but I was in the competition circuit. Um, and, and it was, uh, I just liked to perform. I just liked to, I liked the, the performative aspect of things. And I wasn't, it wasn't like I was a good actor, so I couldn't go into, you know, that kind of thing. Um, being in front of the camera was really appealing to me. And I was in my first year of my doctoral program, sorry, my first year of the master's program, the first and only. And I was super broke, just broke, 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 and temping. I decided to uh, apply for a job at a local restaurant because I was living in Nolita at the time. And there was a restaurant called Jacques, which is no longer there on Prince Street. And I had read a Craigslist ad saying that they were looking for a bartender. And I went to the restaurant uh, to apply for the job because I thought it was just a wine and beer place. And then I looked and I said, I saw that it had a full uh, bar. So I remember talking to the manager and, and saying, I don't really know how to make cocktails, but if you need a chef for catering events or that kind of stuff, you know, please consider me. And so he said, yeah, sure. You know, write down your name on this piece of paper. Of course, it never called me after that, but I sat at the bar and I was writing my name on a piece of paper and this, um, this woman next to me, she turned to me and she said, oh, did you say you're a chef? And I said, um, yeah, I, I was one. And I thought she was going to ask me like a cooking question or something like that. She said, oh, I actually work for the Food Network. Um, my sister and I, we do casting for the next Food Network star. And she's like, tell me about yourself. So I told her about myself and, um, and she's like, okay, I'm going to give you my sister's information. Email her or call her tomorrow. She's, she'll be expecting your call. So I called her, um, or she called me or something like that. I can't remember. And she said, do you want to be, uh, do you want to come in? We're casting for the next Food Network Star right now. And I said, I don't. I would be horrible in a competition show. Um, like I said, I, I, I was in the competition circuit in piano, but not competitive. Uh, I, I just didn't like competing against friends. And I, I didn't like the idea of being on a competition show. Um, and also, again, I don't have that kind of inherent talent uh, for cooking. And um, I said, no, I don't. She's like, that's fine. I'll tell you what to do, make a video, send it to this person. He's the vice president of programming, special programs or something like that. Um, hmm. he, was, he's, he brought the next Food Network star uh, to the U.S. So send him your stuff and we'll see where it goes from there. So I did that. I did all that. And that's how I got connected to the Food Network. Um, and they, I remember they brought me in for a meeting. And I was like, this is it. I'm 25 years old and I'm going to have my own Food Network show. This is amazing. And they brought me in for a meeting and they're like, so what's your angle? And I remember the ideas that I had, they're like, at the time they really just wanted very broad things. Uh, and I, I didn't fit into any of those categories. And I was like, what about a show that's the opposite of the shortcut? It can be called the long cut or the long way. And it's all about how to do things slowly because my strength is in understanding the psychology of a person who doesn't know how to cook and has to start from the ground up. And they're like, yeah, I don't think so. Mm. Um, and so they they didn't know what to do with me. And so they kind of kept me on the back burner and bring me in to do a couple things here and there. But again, and then the, the world changed. Um, logs happened. Uh, 
and Instagram happened and all of a sudden your social media presence and the number of followers that you had mattered. And I was sort of left in the dust because I wasn't, there were people, I wasn't interested in doing a blog and I didn't think that I could do it well. And I, I couldn't do food photography well. Mm. I couldn't create recipes uh, well. And it just wasn't something that I was passionate about. So they uh, asked me to do Cooking with Grace, the mini series on the cooking channel. And that's what I, that's how I got into that. Um, but as I, the more and more I got into food production, the more and more the world changed and the less I saw myself fitting into that space. That's fascinating. We've had a number of food related entrepreneurs and food related people on the show. And, and, you know, a couple of friends of mine, Young, Young and Ted, uh, the Soul Sausage Brothers, um, they actually went on Great American Food Truck Race season three, won the whole damn thing and sort of like propelled them into a, a new part of life that they were not familiar with. And, you know, we uh, most recently we had the Fam Sisters from Amsam who are taking a different approach to food from a CPG, you know, uh, ho at home delivery sauce perspective. And, and I think we are, as, as a Asian American community, especially, you know, uh, second, third generation kids, really, really taking food that, or I guess in the space of food, uh, really leaning into our identity and our culture and giving people permission to be proud of it. You know, another unfortunate story that we hear often too much is every Asian American kid's nightmare lunchbox moment or, you know, having to explain food when friends come over and I hope that goes away and I hope that goes away because people like you, um, you know, you mentioned you saw Martha Stewart on TV and you're like, wow, it'd be cool to have a, you know, a, a cooking show. And it's not just the food that you're going to, you know, that you cooked, right? It's the fact that it was you. It's the fact that when my daughter and my son watch your show, it's, oh my God, that looks like me. That looks like dad. That looks like mom. And to instill the belief that it just becomes duh, common sense that I can be that and that people who look like us can be on TV cooking foods that we eat at home. That I think is unquantifiable joy and benefit and just like that's that's the secret to life, to give somebody hope and to give them permission without having them needing to ask for it. And so I do think that, you know, as we go through COVID, as, as crappy as it is, I think as far as people reconnecting with their families. Um, God, I can't imagine being a high school kid or a college kid being at home with parents right now, but cherish it. You're never going to get this time again. And then for the parents, like I used to travel full time for work and that was an awful part of my life. And, and so if, if you're one of these parents who are now uh, working from home and your clients and your work is demanding, take a moment Take PTO, force yourself to just enjoy because when are we ever going to get forced time with our family back like this? Probably never. I, I don't think so. I mean, maybe, you know, you, you realize some stuff coming out of this pandemic and, and make huge life changes, but, and we're eating as a family more than ever, you know, at least for many of us who, you know, um, as you mentioned, your, your brother continues to go to work. Uh, my wife still continues to go to work, so we can't do it every day and every meal, but at, at a more you know, I guess more, more common occurrence than, than most. And so let's talk about cookable. What is cookable? What was the inception behind it? And what do you want your legacy to be with cookable? Cookable, my third child, actually my level. The first child. Yeah. My, well, no, I hate sort of my second technically. 
Your second yes, child. Yes, my second child. <laughs> my poor son is, is, has been relegated to third. Um, Pokeball, I was, uh, I have been working um, for a private equity firm. I worked for a private equity firm for nine years. So this is not on my LinkedIn profile, but I was working full time while I was getting my PhD. Um, and then I, uh, I was just the least important person in this department, but the benefits were so good and the pay was really good and it was very hard to leave. And fortunately, um, after my first child, I was able to negotiate a severance and got a severance package, thank God, because my daughter was super, super attached and I had moved up to Westchester by this point. And I remember, so I had a little freedom, a little financial breathing room now to figure out what my next steps were. Um, again, I had always had that yearning for something. And I was holding Casper and I was looking at our Echo and I was thinking, huh, you know, I have this relationship with Food Network. Maybe they would hire me to narrate some recipes. And then quickly it turned into, wait a second, no, I, it doesn't make any sense for recipes to be narrated like a book, like an audiobook. That doesn't make any sense. Um, let's figure out a different way in which we can utilize uh, this voice assistant technology for a better experience of cooking at home. Had a lot of conversations um, with my you know, culinary school, with people in the business, as many, many people as I possibly could, and start very quickly started working with a, um, a startup consultant named Andrea, who really helped me flesh out this idea. So it is a new architecture for recipes. It's a voice and video powered um, recipe experience that's, that's guided and that feels like that's the closest thing to having somebody in the kitchen right next to you. Um, it's very difficult to, to describe it in a nutshell. Um, I will say that the first iteration of it was a PowerPoint presentation, uh, with audio tracks that I created on GarageBand and I would film people, um, interacting with voice and video, uh, to, I was, this has not changed. I, we're trying to create a learning context, the, the most optimal learning context. That's like the social experience of learning how to cook. When you are in the kitchen with your mother and she's teaching you something, you are not only looking at what she's doing and how she's chopping something, but you are hearing her stories. You are remembering the ways, like the kind of pots she used, you know what I mean? The cutting board, like just like the way the kitchen looked. There are all these contextual elements that are feeding into your, your knowledge so that when you are, again, reenacting that relationship and cooking that same thing later on, you're remembering those aspects, those little, little tiny little details. And so what we're trying to do is recreate that sort of social context within this video and voice powered experience. Um, so when I did this initial prototype with GarageBand and, and PowerPoint, I was really trying to understand how people respond to different types of stimuli, whether it's verbal stimuli or visual stimuli or tactile stimuli, uh, and really understanding the psychology of cooking a meal for the first time. And then as I was going through this, we were able to iterate on the prototype and then start working with developers to create our beta, which is what's currently out there. The beta is buggy, but uh, we're launching our new product in the fall. In the meanwhile, Amazon and Google and the Food Network and all of these major companies have launched their own video and voice powered cooking experiences. And Amazon and Google have also announced their own first party sort of recipe platforms where they're saying to their media partners, hey, like Conan asked, uh, don't create your own voice experience, just plug and chug your recipes in ours. 
um, so that we can, and their argument is to sort of create a cohesive experience that people come to expect and understand. And I completely understand the merits of that. And they have much more money and much more uh, manpower than I do, but they don't have my very unique intersection of skills. Like I, I, I know that that makes me sound kind of um, arrogant, but the more I think about this, these things that I've done with food, whether it's food media or getting my PhD or doing voiceover work or what have you, I feel like I've been this spider that's creating her own little web. And I might not understand like what this, the significance of this thread is or the significance of that thread is, but as I've continued building this web, I've seen the way it comes together and I'm getting closer and closer to that sweet spot, that middle point. And I feel like that's where I'm, that's where I sit right now. Um, those companies, Amazon and Google, they, um, they don't understand the social experience of cooking and the history of food and the, the psychology of food in the way that I do. And I feel like I'm uniquely fit to create something that's new and cool um, that allows for chefs and restaurateurs and people who own consumer or starting consumer packaged goods or starting their own spirits brands or meal kits to have a to have a space where they can connect with new and existing audience members in a really meaningful way. So does that make sense? Oh, sorry, I feel like no, I'm all over the place. My my mind is it's is you know there's a reason why we get along. There's a reason why people who think the same way find their way onto this show, right? Because mm-hmm. I fun so we we live in an era of obsession over content, content creator, content, content, content. Content doesn't matter without context, and as you said, you are uniquely qualified, perhaps one of the very few people in the world to marry food, which is being commoditized, which has been commoditized for so long, especially our food, especially unique family recipes and cultural legacy type of foods. It's not just food, right? Sure, we can call out the people calling it appropriation when other people open up our own stuff, but it's an emotional experience it is literally you know like it doesn't there's not a whole lot of things that i think can compare to the process food in and of itself but the creation of food the cooking process and the the pain and the emotion and the joys that go in with that and so let amazon google netflix whatever let them do their thing right what they don't have is you right um they don't have the authentic voice because in terms of context, it's the authenticity that's going to win. And perhaps you don't get Martha Stewart famous, but then you have to ask yourself, do you want to get Martha Stewart famous? Because I feel like if you get that big, who's your audience? You don't know anymore, you know? Um, and, and so, you know, I started this along with this long similar vein, right? Like um, everybody's like, oh, Joe Rogan, Michelle Obama, you know, multi-million dollar podcast. Cool. But it, I just want like to have a bunch of Asian American kids who wish who I wish I had when I was their age to listen. And if this helps get rid of some fears or give them permission or to make them feel less alone, then we make a little money doing it. Like that's the goal. Yeah. Right. Like, and, and so, but so content is so different. Right. And I think we, we live in an era also obsessed with scale and hacking stuff and, you know, um, grow with hockey stick, blitz scaling and it's just also toxic and we don't ever forget look growing your business is good you know commerce is good it funds the business it funds other future endeavors 
I'm not shaming it, right? Like, this is not a volunteer project. It requires way too much work for stuff like this to be a volunteer project. But at the same time, you know, there's the, the true measure of the success of your work and my work isn't quantifiable from some metric. No analyst is going to be able to pull data and say, look at all the people who cried listening to your, you know, your, your recipe on cookable because you can't measure that. Right. Yeah. And, and you can't measure the emotional impact that an experience has. And so the trick is how do you take a medium like video, like audio and to infuse what perhaps is really hard to duplicate, but the in-person emotional touch of the experience, the authenticity of how do you get, you know, like, like we said, we can argue about whose mom's, you know, uh, kimchi fried rice or, you know, uh, is the best. And you're going to get a million different answers because yeah. we grew, we we're going to love the thing that we grew up with. That's such a and good so point. what I think, yeah, yeah it's, it's true. And every culture will argue, right? Like, oh, my mom's ex is the best. Cool. I'm not trying to fight you on it. We, we all literally grew up with different palettes and that's beautiful. But let's try to find a way that we can share that out with other people in a very, very meaningful way. And I, I, you had the foresight to see the future of it, right? And I think it is, how do you marry contextually authentic storytelling with technology to right. get it out without losing all the authenticity? Because you're going to have to lose some, right? Like that's, you have to sacrifice a little for scale. But how do you make it authentic enough and how do you make it meaningful enough for people to want to jump on and continue to participate? Yeah. And, and that's, that, that's the, you know, that's, um, the question. that's the big question. That is the big question because right now what I, I mean, my target audience, it's like uh, John Foley with Peloton. He was creating something for himself. This is cookable. When I think about who uses cookable, I think about somebody like myself and also my husband, like our beta testers, they were all over the place in terms of skill level and they all created really phenomenal recipe, like dishes because of cookable. And I think that something like this is uh, that you had brought up so many interesting points. Um, I wish I could touch on every single one of them and something like this. We're not trying to uh, replicate something. We're trying to emulate the social experience of learning how to cook. So it is, we are attempting to create a new type of context that feels very high touch and is, a, is the richest experience that a person can have um, using high technology that allows us to remove the obstacles that so many home cooks have. So I always say that Cookable is a platform that's is one of utility, entertainment, and positive habit formation. Utility in the sense mm -hmm. that you can finally be hands-free. You don't have to scroll endlessly through a blog, which is the most annoying thing in the entire world. You don't have to... Um, you know, wash your hands at like after touching chicken to get to the next step or like to you know get to that space. Um, you're not reaching a point in your recipe where like, oh, what's going to take another hour and a half and I have to get dinner on the table in half an hour? Like all of those obstacles, they're so unnecessary. We take them as par for the course when we're cooking something off, off of a cookbook or, you know, a website for the first time. But that's what that yields is a sense of unintuitive cooking. The recipe format, this text format that we're all accustomed to with the list of steps and procedures, that was created. That wasn't, that's not the standard that's been, you know, over the course of time. That was created. Like, that, <laughs> of course. That's the stage in the evolution of the recipe from 
200 years ago and we finally have the opportunity to reimagine what that cooking experience looks like and to create a scalable architecture um, that is the richest experience and that's one of the most unique challenges but it's also one of the most fascinating like for me i have no interest in being famous i have no interest in being in front of the camera you know at all um, unless i absolutely have to be i'm really interested in doing like i said the biggest hardest thing and to me that's this like i'm really interested in the opportunity to create a skyscraper and it's ridiculous because you know my husband he you have the echo show and he, we're looking at some of the echo recipes and he was like how can you even think about competing against these guys and i'm like but what we have is so much richer you know i mean their recipes are the perfect i call them the perfect applications for soulless recipes but ours are full of heart right. um and i think that we're getting there i think that we're getting to that point look I, you can we going through COVID and our digital connectedness with a lot of people has, I think, really, I don't want to say exposed, but it's brought to light how people view the world generally. If you're a somebody who genuinely believes that the world is a pure meritocracy and that traditional success makes you a better human being than the next person, um, good for you. I don't agree with you. I and mean, when it comes to this stuff like this, you know, somebody can be like, yeah, but you know, look at, look at the scale that Echo has with Amazon. And, you know, it's like getting a McDonald's Big Mac anywhere in the world. It's that precision. It's that, you know, you know, you can duplicate it with consistency. But if you go to the back of a restaurant that's been open 50 years and you ask the grandma in the back, how do you make this? Touch, soul, heart. McDonald's can't do that, yeah. right? Like, and and so, I you know how do you how do you scale that? You can't, like you said, you're not trying to replicate or trying to emulate it. But I, I do think that look at the let's call them scandals, right? Like all all the food related scandals of uh, most recently, like the Bon Appetit crap, right? Like we're getting to a point where. People who look like me and you are finally saying, like, we don't need you, fancy restaurant name, fancy celebrity chef, fancy whatever, for us to be shared, for us to be able to share what we know in our heart of hearts is real, authentic food. And thanks to technology, we're going to be able to get to our end user without your vehicle. Mm -hmm. And your vehicle may be a show, it may be your blessing, it may be you know, a, a medium or a platform, but we're going to get to the people who need to get to us. Right. So it's, I, I think what you're doing, I don't think the impacts are ever going to be quantifiable. I think what you are creating and the impacts of what you want to do will be felt for generations to come. Because I think what, while your, while your efforts may not specifically target immigrants of all generations, I think what it will actually end up doing is to give permission to immigrants of all creeds and all backgrounds to be able to reconnect with their culture in a way that was not possible because I don't live with my grandmother. Yeah. I don't, you know, we don't get to learn cooking from our mothers. And if you are somebody who grew up or growing right now in an area without much cultural community, how do you connect? Yeah. There's thousands of transracial, transnational adoptee friends out there who have never had genuine family cooked Korean food. Yeah. 
And they're not going to learn off of a book, right? They don't want to learn off of a book. It's been, you know, mass marketed. So I, I think that's fascinating. And I think as you studied in school and as you sort of lived your entire life, it's just how do you marry food with emotion and psychology and understand why people eat, how people eat and why people cook. Right. Exactly. You can, right. Because look, if, if you're, if you're such a, you know, meritocracy person, like why do you even cook? You should always buy everything. Right. And you should eat the most calorically dense food in the shortest amount of time possible and move on to the next thing. If you want to make your life the most efficient process possible. But you don't do that. So then why are we tricking ourselves into thinking that the creation of food should follow the same process? Life is meant to be lived and enjoyed. And if you haven't learned that lesson here in 2020, going through what we're going through collectively, I, I don't know, you know, um, but I do think that through your work and through your creation and, and through the thing that you, Grace Choi, are uniquely and perhaps the only person in the world who can do this, I'm really excited to see what comes of it. Thank you. And also to highlight what you're doing as you're getting ready to release is the podcast, The Psyche Eats. And I think you are highlighting people within the food space, but not necessarily focusing on the food, but their story. And so one episode that I want to highlight and I encourage everybody to listen to it is with another Korean American named Eric Kim, who shares, who, who shared uh, through his blog post how he came out to his parents and it was food, the food that we all grew up with that we're talking about, that sort of to its best ability, it's not an easy conversation to have, but sort of mended it together. Yeah. And, and we talk about why all Koreans love spam, which is something I had for breakfast this morning. Mm -hmm. And then just these unique things that I think we understand uniquely. And it's not, you know, I think, I think all immigrant kids certainly understand how food plays a critical role especially for our parents who either by choice or not are living in a country that is still foreign to them where they always will feel not included and not welcome, but in the confines and in the safety of our homes, the food that we cook and share with our own people, you can't ever take that away. So it's, um, it's also so highly emotional and complex. And I feel like food is one of the most accessible, accessible ways for people outside of one's culture to experience it, right? Uh, we need to give them opportunities, entry points in, to access that, not just by tasting the flavors, but by hearing the stories. And I feel like that is something that is lacking. When you are, you know, you can, I think Hasan Minaj has this example of how like the Fox News um, correspondents, they'll spew their racist stuff and then go downstairs and go to the halal cart, the halal guys on 53rd and 6th, and eat chicken and rice, you know what I mean? And it's like, how can they, how can there be that much of a disconnect in what they're saying and what they're putting out with their mouths and what they're taking in with their mouths? Um, if we facilitate that kind of connection, I do think that we have the, the opportunity to change the world. And it's, you know, I'm not sure, I need to revisit this. I can't find it anywhere. Maybe you can find it. But there's a very interesting conversation between Francis Lam of Split a Table, the journalist, and Eddie Huang from ah, ten, off the boat. 10 years ago. 10 years ago, um, wow. Yeah, it was, uh, it was on Guilt Taste, which is now defunct, but it was a conversation between the two of them where they really, really got into it uh, with 
with regards to food and, and the outsider's perspective and how things had to be normalized by outsiders before it was embraced or that kind of thing. And I have yet to find it anywhere um, on the interweb. But if you do find it, I, I, I highly encourage you to revisit it and see if we see where the conversation is now in comparison. Because in my mind, it's um, it's a very, very interesting, relevant conversation. I just want to take a moment. Yeah. Damn it, Grace. My mouth water when you say hello, guys, in 53rd and 6th. Because if you're from New York, if you visited New York, um, especially at 3 a.m. after you've had uh, an appropriate number of drinks, that is the place to go. Ironically, it's like literally at the footsteps of Fox News and you see all their yeah. big, ugly faces on, on their wall. And you're literally right. Like it's they go there. And it's like, how do you not understand that the people that you just cursed out and put their lives in danger? Are terrorists. Day, yeah, literally. Right. Are the foods that you just like, oh, my God, there's you know, it's there for a reason. But man, I can't go back. I, I can't wait to go back to New York and, and go eat that again. They, they franchise it. So we have some locations out here in L.A. Yes, but it's, it's not the same. It's not the same. But yeah. So yeah, food, food does evoke emotion. Um, you know, food is, you know, I, food, food will maybe not save the world, but it will mend some relationships. It will bring some people together. And yeah, and, and for you to use, again, technology and, and your education and your perspective and your unique gifts to be able to move that conversation forward, I, I think is a very, very um, commendable and, and honorable and ins, in inspiring thing that you're doing. This has been so much fun. I, I think we can talk about forever. I hope we get to a point, Grace, where we can safely go and hang out and bring a lot of people together to experience your product and, you know, enjoy the food that we create with uh, the recipes that we get from Cookable together. And if our older guests are listening who are in the food business, definitely reach out. I think there's a lot of fun collaboration partnerships and opportunities that exist to take whatever you've created into people's homes. Yes. You know, we have sauce people, we have makgeolli people, we have fish sauce people, we have uh, Vietnamese coffee people, sausage people. You know who you are. If you're listening, uh, do reach out to Grace. Yeah. Or if you're an aspiring food entrepreneur, reach out. Um, Think of us as the last mile solution. We are that last touch point between, you can sell your consumer packaged good, your CPG off the shelf, but think of us as when people take home that, that product, how do they hear your story? How do they know how to taste it? How do they know how to cook with it? We are that for you. And that's where it matters the most because we cook at home, right? Okay. So thank you. I want to finish the show in the same that we finish all of our shows and it is in the form of the Dear Asian Americans Love Letter. Most of our listeners know by now this show I started on March 2nd as a gift to my daughter but it was also a very selfish project because I wanted to create something that I wish I had when I was very much, uh, much younger version of me. And even perhaps as a 37 year old dad of two things that I still need to hear to get rid of the voices of doubt and the voices of limitation and scarcity in my mind to continue to do what we do to inspire other people to do great things. Cause I don't think we do that enough. And I don't think we will ever be able to do that enough to get to a point where every Asian American kid, recent immigrant or third generation feels inspired and allowed and excited to do whatever it is the hell that they want. And we believe that part of what we can do is to share as many unique Asian American stories as humanly possible to give permission and to eliminate the voices of doubt from that conversation. So Grace, help us finish out the show and complete the letter, Dear Asian Americans. 
Dear Asian Americans, the best advice I can give to anybody is the same advice that was given to me by Carol Gilligan 10 years ago when I took her course. And it doesn't, it's not limited to any ethnic group or any group whatsoever, but it is to ask yourself the question, what happens when you replace judgment with curiosity? Judgment towards others and then also judgment towards yourself. I think that you had said earlier that should is one of the most pervasive and damaging words. And I absolutely 100% agree. I think that at every crossroads, I've asked myself, what happens if you replace judgment with curiosity? And that's helped me to get one step further every step of the way. Don't focus at all or try not to. I know how hard it is. I know our moms love us. Sometimes you got to quiet them out. I know our friends care for us and perhaps even our spouses and our siblings do deeply care about us, but you're the only one that's going to have to live with the rest of your life. And so, as Grace said, replace a little bit of the judgment or all of it, however you feel comfortable with curiosity and try something. Life is short and whatever this means to you, but make your parents proud, but also make your grandkids proud and do something that you can really be proud to share with them of how you built upon the sacrifices of our parents and our grandparents and now are doing the same. And and food is really going to be one of the very few things that will carry and then connect multi-generational storytelling and legacies of people. So Grace, thank you for joining us today. We've made it for an hour and a half without our either of our children bothering us, which I think is is commendable in and of itself. Want want to thank the people who are watch hanging out with the kids so we can do this during the day. Look for Grace. Learn more about Cookable at cookable.ai. You can also look for Cookable Inc. across all the different platforms on Instagram. It's just Cookable. Grace, thank you for really spending your time with us. And I think food is such a fascinating space that I really love to explore because it's the thing that really binds us together through language, through food, and, and through through sharing. Actually, it's still Cookable Inc. on Instagram. Again, subscribe to her podcast. It's Cookable Presents, The Psyche Eats. You can look up her older videos from the cooking channel shows. And then she's really got a lot of great insight. Connect with her on Instagram, follow her on LinkedIn, wherever you can. I do fundamentally believe in and always advocate and encourage that we have to be the first to support each other when it comes to ventures, when it comes to new projects, particularly in spaces where we don't really see a whole lot of each other. And so um, if you have a passion for uplifting um, Asian American folks, uh, particularly Asian American women in the technology space, in the food space, uh, we can start with small actions, listening to podcasts, sharing the story out, subscribing to her newsletter and um, engaging with her. And maybe one day our daughters will grow up and we don't even have to have this talk with them. That's the goal. That is the goal. Grace. Thanks so much for joining today. Best of luck to you as we navigate what will be an eventful 86 days, 84 days, 80, I don't know, until the election yes. and beyond. Yeah, um, I'm excited. Best, yeah, all, all the health, happiness and safety to you and your family and looking forward to talking to you soon. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks. Really appreciate Grace for coming on the show. If you found this story helpful, fun, engaging, if you loved it, I encourage you and I would be grateful if you share out her show and the link to your friends via social media or anywhere else, if you are able and if you would like to, please tag us where you can 
across most social media platforms. We are at Dear Asian Americans. On Twitter, we are at Dear Asian Am. I welcome you to always connect with us. You can shoot us a DM through the inbox at Dear Asian Americans or email us hello at DearAsianAmericans.com. We'd be more than happy to engage with you. Uh, we've got some amazing shows coming up. And if you do want to join us on the show here, uh, there's a link that you can fill out at the on our website uh, to be considered. Again, big shout outs to Sarah Yu, our first Patreon member. Join her at patreon.com slash Americans. Subscribe and follow along to the new show that we are producing here at Just Like Media, The Chan Chi Show with Nathan, KJ, and Patrick. And a big shout out to Jonathan Wong, our guest one, episode one guest, uh, for connecting us with Patrick. It's going to be a great month. I'm excited for what's to come. It's going to be a tough month. Um, if you're focused on helping elections, uh, stay strong, stay healthy. We've got two months to go. Again, please make sure you're registered to vote. Have a voting plan in place. Um, the census deadline is coming up. So if you or your family have not filled it out, I highly encourage you to do so. Wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to this, we wish you all the health, safety, and happiness in the world. It's an honor to do these shows. It is my pleasure to share these conversations with you. Thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, my friends, be well. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, signing off on episode 72 of Dear Asian Americans.